Welcome to the Let's Drive Together podcast, where we will be interviewing some of the most amazing entrepreneurs and lifestyle coaches from Australia and all around the world. Welcome to this week's episode. I have a special guest here with me today, Michael Johnson from the Mojo Master. Michael, I really appreciate your time for taking this opportunity. It's I'm really glad to have you here on board. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, so why don't you start off with telling us a little bit about you and what you do for work and what's that burning desire that you have every single morning to get yourself out of the bed? Uh, okay, good question. Uh, well, first of all, uh, I'm a high performance coach uh, specializing in human behavior. So I work mm-hmm. with business owners to help them perform better. Um, I've been lucky enough to have a billion dollar client list and to work with some of Australia's top rich listers. Um, also go into corporate companies and work with their sales teams, marketing teams, management teams, um, all just helping them to uh, perform better. Um, mm-hmm. And I've also been lucky enough to work with world champion athletes and um, you know everyone in between. We, uh, we run events for the general public. Um, yep. They just help them to perform better. Um, I, I really believe that everybody is born to be extraordinary. Um, mm-hmm. yet in our actions and our thought processes, they tend to get jumbled up quite a bit. And we get confused or stressed or um, don't really know what we want to do in life. And it really hinders and affects our performance. So I go in yep. there and just help people to get clear about themselves and about what they really do well and, and really help them excel um, and give them powerful tools to build the right habits, the right behaviors um, mm-hmm. and keep them performing at their peak. Oh, yeah, that's really awesome. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit of backstory of why did you decide to become a coach? Like, what is that initial story? Can you tell us, like, how did you get into the coaching? Yeah, so it is a long story, but I'll cut it down as short as I can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, originally, I, I remember a time when I was really young and uh, my parents are 17 and 19, year old, uh, 19 years older than I am. So they were quite mm-hmm. young when they had me and they used to go out and party quite a lot. Um, and you know, they'd just bring myself and I've got a younger sister along with them. And we had yep. this, uh, like holiday home up in the Riverland. Um, well, I guess it was a friends. It was one of their friends that we used to go up to. And they used to throw these wild parties where they would have these big bonfires and, mm. um, you know, everyone would be drinking and partying and myself and my sister used to just do what, what we sort of felt like doing. Um, yeah. And a lot of the time I used to sit down by the Murray, the Murray River and um, we would just sit there and I would probably, um, at the time I was just fishing by myself and I started asking myself how things work. Like why does the river carve a cliff on one side and not on the other side? And I'd look at the moon and wonder how the moon worked and why it was shiny. Um, yeah. I would also wonder about the stars. And I think a lot of people look up in the sky and, it creates this amazing awe and wonder, um, especially if you're in amazing places where it's really dark and you don't get a lot of light distortion. Mm. And um, I think looking back now, that was probably the the first place I started questioning everything about life and why we're here and why we do what we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, going through school, I forgot all about that. And uh, I wasn't a really talented kid at school. So I got put into special classes. I was told that I may have dyslexia. Um, mm. I, I was told that I had learning difficulties uh, yep. where ADD was thrown around. And so because of that, I really felt like I was this dumb kid, didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. Everyone else seemed to be excelling, yet I seemed to be the dumb kid. Mm-hmm. And as school went on, I used to get picked on quite a lot because I had bright red hair and freckles and I was a bit chubby as well. And I didn't really fit into a lot of friendship circles because yep. of my parents going away most weekends partying. Um, we used to go with them as well. And so I didn't play um, school sports or team sports. So I was a bit of an outcast. Yep. And uh, 
eventually, um, you know, I used to get in fights quite a lot because I'd get picked on and then I'd fight with people or, um, yeah, it just, it wasn't really, I wasn't in a good place. And um, I ended up getting expelled from school when I was 15. And I felt mm-hmm. this big hole of depression where yep. I felt, in all honesty, like I was this piece of shit that couldn't achieve anything, that wasn't going to get anywhere in life. You know, I wasn't going to do well at school, which meant that I couldn't go to university, which meant that I couldn't get a good job, which then meant that I couldn't live this great life that I was promised or, or mm-hmm. told about by adults. So um, at, around that time, uh, you know, I'd contemplated killing myself and committing suicide. And yeah. then one day I just realized that I couldn't make anyone else happy, that I was here to do what I love to do and, and I needed to figure that out. Hmm. So I ended up going back to school uh, and finishing off uh, my high school education. Um, and even then, I loved figuring out how things worked. Um, I loved um, figuring out how cars worked and machinery and mechanics because I just love learning and I love f- um, really just figuring out how things work. Yeah. So I decided to become a diesel mechanic. Um, and when I was working, doing my apprenticeship, I realized that there were a lot of people going up to the mines who were going to make all this money. And most of them were unhappy. They would come back miserable. They would complain about never having enough money, even though they were making, you know, double or triple the amount of the average person that I'd seen. Uh, And I realized that money didn't make people happy. And the more money I seemed to see these people making, the more unhappy they would get. Yet they buy, you know, new cars all the times, motorbikes, jet skis, um, to, to get this happiness, but they still weren't happy. So it confused me quite a lot. Okay. And this one day, I just remember being really depressed and sitting at home thinking, what am I going to do with my life? I was around 19 at the time, yeah, maybe 20. And uh, I was flipping through, a, uh, through the newspaper and I saw this ad and it said, become a personal trainer. And I thought, you know, I love going to the gym. It was around that time that I really started discovering that when I, when I went to the gym, I felt good about myself. And it was yep. the first time in my life I'd ever felt good about being myself. Um, and also people who went to the gym after work seemed to be fairly happy to be at the gym as well. Like they'd complain about how shitty their day was, but they actually liked being mm-hmm. at the gym and they liked connecting with other people, which, you know, I yep. felt quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, you know, what, I'm going to go back and I'm going to study. But at the same time, I had all these fears about me being dumb and not being able to learn and the fear of failure again of going back to school and having to do all this stuff. So, um, yeah, it brought up all my fears and all my worries. And eventually I just got the courage and I thought, you know, I'm going to go for it. So I went and signed up and I entered into this one year personal training program. Um, back then it was a year of night study. Um, now I know you can do it in about 12 weeks, but yeah, I went back to school and when I was there, I found I was really good at it. I loved it. Um, Mm. and because I loved it, they would give us, you know, a three month workbook of all the topics and all the subjects that we were going to learn about for the next semester. And I would read it all in a weekend and then I'd be on the internet studying and learning. And this was back in the dial-up internet days where you had to wait for ages while it dialed up and bought up. Yeah, no. So, um, yeah, I just I, I found that I love learning and I love studying. And so eventually mm. I ended up getting signed off my apprenticeship a year early and I quit that day. And I went to the local gym and I said, look, I'll do anything. I'll clean toilets. Just give yep. me a chance. And they gave me a chance. And within a couple of months, I was working as a personal trainer and just found that I really loved helping people um, yep. and that so many people use exercise as a way of feeling good about themselves and discovering who they are and what their worth is. Yep. The more I was doing that, the more I started realizing that there were these patterns that kept coming up. And one of them was a lot of them seemed to have injuries, um, mm. not because of my training, but by work or by injuries that had happened in the past or by them training by themselves at the gym. And so I started studying a lot more into physical rehabilitation. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of 
um, the personal trainers didn't do a lot with uh, allied health professionals. Even allied health was never even a term used. Okay. So I started referring a lot to the, the local physio and then the physio started coming in and training with me. And the more I built these relationships with health professionals, the more I started learning. And I thought, this is really cool. Um, at that time, yeah. it hadn't really been done well and it hadn't been done a lot. Um, back in back in my days, the personal trainers were mainly just big meatheads that followed Arnold Schwarzenegger and just lifted a lot of weights. So um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I started studying a lot of physical rehabilitation and helping clients do that and getting a lot of referrals. Um, until eventually I ended up going back and I studied uh, high-performance kinesiology and uh, also uh, a lot of nutrition. Um, yep. and the more that that helped me as well. Um, before that, I went through chronic fatigue, so I was keen to try and find out how I could um, help myself um, because a doctor told me I would have that forever and I didn't want to be I didn't want that sentence to be with me forever. Yep. So I started improving my own health, changing my diet, looking after myself a lot more, changed the way that I was training, the way that I was moving. Um, and eventually, mm. I ended up uh, leaving the gym and I worked at a medical center for three years where uh, I worked, I bought on uh, one of my close friends at the time who is now the Adelaide 36's basketball side strength and conditioning coach, Adam Murphy. So he's someone who um, I bought on uh, to work with me. Um, and so we worked together in that business and in the medical center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we used to work with a lot of doctors, physios, chiros, psychologists. Mm. And over time, I kept seeing this pattern. And I guess I was really good with patterns, and I don't know if that's because of maybe you know observation yeah. or whatever it was. But I started seeing that these the same people kept coming into the medical center over and over and over again, and I would sit down and talk to them and ask them questions. And what I found was a lot of them were in physical injury; uh, they had this pain, but a lot of the time the physios weren't getting to the bottom of what was causing the pain. And yep. a lot of them were getting told, you know, like they'd get out of bed in the morning and they would roll over and the next second their back would blow out. And they were getting diagnosed with these bulging discs or these other injuries. But when you think about it, lying in bed and rolling over shouldn't blow your back out. Or yeah. picking up a child off of the ground and being 40 years of age shouldn't blow your back or your shoulder or your neck out. So I was inquisitive and wanted to study more. And I also noticed that a lot of them were getting passed off to the psychologist because after a while when the doctors and the physios and the chiros couldn't figure out what was going on, and, and I, maybe it was because they didn't have enough time with the patient or maybe it was because they weren't skilled in looking deep into that stuff. I'm not really too sure, and this isn't all physios or all chiros because there's a lot of great ones out there who, who dive deep into this stuff, um, many of them who I've learned from. But what I found was that, that a lot of people, there seemed to be a correlation between their own thinking and their psychology and the physical pain in their body and the way that they're, that it was affecting their life. So I started studying a lot of mindset. And the more I studied mindset, the more confused I got because there was a lot of stuff that's out there that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I'm a very practical guy where, you know, if someone says this is the way something is, I want to know why and why yeah. it's that way. Um, again, yeah. it's just my inquisitive side. And I found that a lot of the time people would get to a point and they just go, well, that's just how it is. And they didn't mm-hmm. really have an answer. And yep. that frustrated me. So I kept studying and kept looking and I went and studied four NLP mastery programs, which, you know, they were good, but there was lots of gaps in there as well. And then I started working with a psychologist and asking her a lot of questions and trying to figure out what was going on and what she thought about things. And there were gaps where she was. And so I just kept studying and learning from people who were way smarter than I was um, until one day I left where I was working and I started running little events on health and mindset. And eventually they became more mindset events. And I, that's really how my coaching started. Um, yep. and since that time, you know, I've spent well over, 
I would say, seven figures on study. I've been able to travel around the world studying from some of the smartest people on the planet. And I'm just really inquisitive as to how humans work and why we work the way that we work. Mm, yeah, interesting. I really like the story since you went through all that trauma, all those challenges in the life, but you decided to not be a victim and then take that opportunity to learn about fitness, learn about mindset and always questioning things. And that's really amazing thing because you always have to question and just don't take it as it is, you know, always like get the get to the back of the story of why things are the way they are. Yep. Yeah. Well, what I found also is that a lot of people take the things that happen to them in life way too seriously, but they don't take yeah. their life seriously enough. And that is at the end of today, we're all closer to dying. So I don't True. know what age I'm going to die at, but what I know is that after today, I'm one day closer to it. And most mm -hmm. people don't treat their life as though they're just ticking off the boxes and that's it. It's done. But then they'll mm -hmm. take things that happened to them 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago so seriously that they relive that experience every day over and over and over again. They're trying to figure out why that thing happened to them. And then they get mm -hmm. in a victimized mentality. But their whole life is a reflection of their past. They don't really think about their life as moving towards the future that they've always wanted to create. And mm. I think that's the difference between myself and why I've had a lot of the achievements that I have working with people because we, we really get to create the life that we want and it's not based on our circumstances. I mean, I've worked with kids who or, pe or adults now who have had very close family members to them commit suicide and um, die from a very young age and then living on the streets to become yep. uh, you know, worth hundreds of millions of dollars with an amazing family, great health, and that became their driver. Whereas I've met other people in similar circumstances and that mm -hmm. became their reason and their excuse not to achieve. So true, true. it's really up to the individual as to how we want to look at life. And I think mm. some people are driven to realize their greatness and then others are scared shitless of it. And, and mm. it, it really depends. Yeah. Yeah, I really love that um, driving force. If you have that driving force, even though like whatever you went through through the life, but when you have that driving force and use it to your advantage to accelerate and that's really amazing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It, it mm. depends. Like I think every, and I don't want to go too far off track. But yep. What I found is that everything is relative and it's all the same for everybody. Um, and what I mean by that is I had a young guy this morning who sent me a message and um, he was asking me questions about money. And he said, you know, I just, I want to make more money so that then I don't really have to work and I can be free. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's sort of a bit silly, don't you think? That you think that you got, you're going to make money so that then you don't have to work and working is the thing that's going to make you money. So what's going to happen to your money when you stop working? Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to, he's going to go backwards. And most people think that they're going to have this thing in the future that's going to make them feel differently when the truth is the things that work to get you there should never stop. Mm. You know, a lot of people think when I have more money, I'm going to have a better life, but they're not prepared to do the things today that are going to help them to get ahead financially. And so because mm. of that, they think that one day in the future, it's going to change. But how's it going to change when they've got to create those habits either way? So they get mm. to do it today or they get to do it in five years. It makes no difference. It just means that in five years' time, they've wasted five years. They're still going to have to learn those habits whether they like it or not. Yeah, true. And a lot of people Definitely. think when I have more money, life will be better. But that's like uh, or, or this idea of freedom that if I work hard now, then I don't have to work. But that's almost mm. like saying if I go to the gym and I work really hard to get a great body, yep. then I'll never have to go to the gym again. Yeah, it's Everyone impossible. you're going to get yeah. fat. Yeah, but exactly. Yep. You know, most people don't think that when I get ahead financially, then if I think that I'm going to spend all of this time sitting on the beach and doing nothing, that I'm going to waste all my money and then I'm going to be broke again. It, mm -hmm. It's sort of, it's a bit ludicrous the way that a lot of people think.
But, mm. you know, I just don't think a lot of people think. And um, one of my good friends is Dr. John Z. Martini, and he always said, most people don't think. They think they think. And mm. it's true. I think that a lot of people think very superficially about life, about why they do things, about the pain in their body, about the pains that are created within their own life, instead of looking deep into it and realizing that that can be the, the teacher that propels us forward in life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Um why don't you tell us a little bit about like what is that biggest struggle you find between your clients? Um, is that exactly in their mindset? Could you like go very deep on that topic? Because we want to like find out what is that um, struggle that they have? Is it the habit? Is it the main mindset? Yeah, if you can touch uh, on that, that'd be great. Uh, it depends on how long we've got and how deep you want me to go. I can spend you know days <laughs> just going. I mean, keep it topic. keep it a bit <laughs> short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay, well, so when we look at habits, habits are a reflection of the neural networks within our brain. So when we look at a habit, a habit is really a thought. And it gets, so a thought is created in the brain. And I won't go into the physics and the science of this, the neuroscience, but I've spent, you know, years and years studying this stuff. Um, and they're, you know, I'm fairly well versed in this side of things, not, um, just because I found that a lot of people aren't. Um, even people in the mindset and mental health space some of them are really, really good, and then the majority of them are really sloppy. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at that, let's let's just talk quickly about uh, the idea of something like an addiction. A lot of okay. people will try to break a behavior without, without creating a different psychology or a different mindset. But it's actually the, it's the thought process. So when we, when we look at our sensory perception um, of the world, for instance, our eyes, our eyes take in electromagnetic frequencies. Mm-hmm. And what that means is we don't actually see anything. What happens is those electromagnetic frequencies that we call light enter our eyes and then it goes into a part of the brain where it's interpreted. So our whole reality based on our visual perception is an interpretation of our brain. Mm. Now, if you study pain and pain science, where you feel pain isn't necessarily where there, there is pain. It depends. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on within the brain. So there's things called dermatones that run on the skin. Um, they could be referred pains. There's a whole bunch of different things. But really, it's the brain's interpretation of where it thinks the pain is or what it could be and their relationships um, in, in the most simple form. So everything that you perceive from your senses is in an in interpretation of the brain. That's the point that I'm trying to make. So mm-hmm. when someone says to me, Michael, you just can't trust people, that's reality. Well, that's yep. true for them, but that may not be true for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, that's why when you get in and you argue with people like that and you say, no, that's not true, you can trust people. And they go, no, you can't. You know, some people go, you can't trust the government. And others go, well, of course you can. And they go, and then they argue with each other. Yeah, they it's the personal experience. Yeah. The reality. Yep. Right? So... It's, it's the psychology, it's a person's perceptions within their own brain that then create the neural networks. Those neural mm. networks are fired and wired through a process called Hebb's Law. And Hebb's Law states that circuits in the brain that are fired together, wired together, and they, they do a thing called myelination. And myelination means that you can fire off a circuit faster the next time you think about it. And after a while, that becomes our habits and our behaviors. But also, our body has to understand what to do with those thoughts. And the way that it does that is through a whole bunch of different uh, signals. But a lot of them, let's just talk about the hormonal sequencing and neuropeptides. What it will do is it will change the neurochemistry of the body and how the cells function by that thought process. 
I'll give you an example. If I throw a, a snake in the room right now and you don't like snakes based on a past perception, automatically when you see that snake, you go, shit, it's a snake. And yep. it will trigger based on the thought process. A yeah, whole pretty much fear. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be a fear. For example, if someone is afraid of a snake, it could be like fear. You know, they'd be afraid of it. Yeah, well, that fear, which is an emotional feeling, because we don't fear fear the thought itself. It's the feeling that's associated with the perception. Mm, So when you see the snake, your brain goes, hang on, let me go back and just check what all this means. And me growing up in the in the South Australian countryside, there were a lot of brown snakes. So my parents taught me that if you see snakes, that they're dangerous. Mm. Now that may not be true, but it was it was a generalization and a process that that was a survival mechanism that my parents taught me. Yep. So I don't even know whether the snake that I'm seeing is a deadly snake or not a deadly snake, but my brain still reacts that a snake is bad. It means death. Yeah. So because of that, my brain triggers that response. My neurochemicals change all my chemicals in my body. Because of that change, it makes me feel a certain way, which then triggers that fear response or anxiety or stress or worry. And then Mm. because of that, my body takes an action. And that action is based on those feelings and the thought process. So what tends to happen is a lot of people try to change their behaviors or try to change the way that they feel without changing the way that they think or their perceptions about that thing. Does Mm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does really make sense. Yeah. So most yes. people work backwards. Like when you look at drug rehab, they go, well, drinking's bad. You shouldn't drink. But mm-hmm. they're not – depending on who they work with and the amount of neuroscience that they've sort of studied and whether they've studied you know, neurobiology or biology as well and a whole bunch of other sciences, depends mm. on how well-versed they are. But if you're not trying to change the perception of what causes them to drink in the first place, that person then has to really fight hard to try and change the way that they think about that thing. And that's why you'll hear th- people say that it takes anywhere from 21 days, but the science says 26. It's 26 to around 365 days to create a new habit. Mm, that's crazy. Yeah, it takes a long, you know, you have to be disciplined. Yes, yep. because you have to then demyelinate the brain or, or demyelinate the fatty tissue around the nerve fibers within the brain and then remyelinate a new nerve fiber or new um, neural signaling, which then creates mm. a new habit. So you have to deconstruct an old habit as you build a new habit. Mm. Well, you yeah. can actually change habits in seconds by changing the perception. Mm. So it yeah. depends on how you look at it and the research behind it. Yeah. Um, so in response to your question, is it a habit? Yes, it is a habit, but a habit is always a byproduct of the thinking. Okay. Yep. So it's directly related or interlinked with our mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And that's why our events are so different because what I found was so many personal development events or human behavior events or you know events based on psychology are normally based around changing the behavior or changing the way a person feels without understanding how the brain neuroplasticity uh, uses a process called neuroplasticity to create changes and how to make that happen even faster by changing perceptions. And perceptions, a lot of our perceptions are actually based on laws of physics. And there's, there's also science now that shows that the brain is always trying to create stabilization or stability. So a lot of our thought processes, when we perceive something one way, aren't actually that way. They're balanced in our own psychology. It's just our conscious awareness is only is only aware of one side. And I'll give you an example. There are lots of people who come to my events and they say, you know, because of my past relationship, that past person destroyed my life. They just, they destroyed my self worth. You know, I yep. hate men or whatever it is. 
But mm-hmm. when we go back and we have a look at that experience, they actually gained a lot from it also. But until mm-hmm. they realize that the gain is exactly balanced with the losses that they perceived, they're out of balance, which then triggers out of balanced emotional states. And what I've found is that people who consistently crave happiness and and joy and excitement normally also feel a lot of unhappiness, a lot of uncertainty, um, Mm. and they never feel like they reach that point of being calm. Yeah. Mm. But then the more that that happens, the more they keep thinking, shit, I've got to do all these things to try and be more peaceful as a person. And that's why you get peace movements. And a lot of people in a peace movement aren't peaceful. They're actually Mm. highly stressed. Mm, but we don't see that. It's pretty much like how it is, I guess. Yeah. Mm. So it's as imbalances in their psychology and one of them they suppress and the other one they express. So mm. some people try to be kind to everybody, but then they feel like they get taken advantage of. And when they do yeah. that, they get really angry with themselves, but then they keep their anger on the inside until it boils out yeah. one day and they explode. And then when they explode, they apologize because they go, oh shit, I'm not normally like this. I'm a really kind person. Yeah, and true. They repress it. Yeah. Yeah. When true, you're balanced, true. you realize that you can set, you can be more aggressive and more angry in the way that you create boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so you set boundaries and hold people accountable to those boundaries. And if they cross them, you can be a bit more aggressive with them instead of trying to be too kind. And when you're too kind, people walk over you until you explode. The more mm-hmm. out of balance you are in your own psychology, the more you go through vicious cycles and the more volatile you are as a person. Mm. True. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Um, my next question would be uh, the difference between asset and liability. And I know that you're a car enthusiastic as well. And what do you think, what do you define car? Is it like a liability or do you consider it as an asset? Like if you can tell us a little bit about that. I get asked this question a lot and it depends on your perception of what an asset and a liability is. Okay. What I see is that an asset adds value to your life because money is a transfer of value, right? Yep. Um, when I work with people, you can normally tell where they are at in their psychological development around money because when they describe what money is, how they use money, it's also if you exchange the word money for value, it'll tell you. So when someone says money is not important, what they're saying is value is not important. Yep, true. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Um, when someone says money is evil, what they're saying is value is evil because mm. those who tend to make the most money and retain it for a long period of time Okay, which means they're not volatile with money, they tend to be the ones who add the most value. Mm. So when you look at people like Bill Gates, he's had Microsoft now since, I don't know, was it the 70s maybe? Yeah, I think 30 years at least plus, yeah. Yep. Now, when you, I mean, I've got Microsoft running on my computer now. So mm-hmm. when we look at what he's done for the world, now whether there's all this stuff about Bill Gates right now and the vaccinations and all that stuff, you know, yeah. that's irrelevant. Different story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just when you have a look at the value that he's added to the world, is my life easier because of Microsoft and what Microsoft has created? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. same with Apple pretty much, yeah, or any other like, top brands, yeah. I'm using an Apple computer right now and I've got an Apple laptop next to me and I've also got an Apple iPad and, you know, I've got an Apple mm-hmm. phone. It's added yep. massive value. So I've probably mm-hmm. got $10,000 worth of Apple stuff on my desk, which is why I paid for that because can I make more money by having those Apple products? And the answer is yes. Yep, true. So that's an exchange of value. And um, a lot of people don't perceive that money is the exchange of value, which is why a lot of people don't have it and don't keep it. Mm. So when someone devalues themselves, they'll make money and then they'll spend it trying to feel good about themselves or about their life, which then means that they have no money. And so they have this consistent 
imbalance or volatility with money. Now, after a while, that creates psychological imbalances because they keep going, shit, I keep working hard and, and at the end of the week, I still have no money and I can't understand why. But it's mm. because they haven't trained their brain to think about value and because of that, they won't retain money. Okay, there's other mm. things as well. They need to know how to use it effectively too. Yeah, true, true. Yep. Um, so when we, when we look at uh, assets and liabilities, the way I perceive an asset is, is my life, can I add more value to my life by having that thing? Mm-hmm. Now, when I have a look at my home, because I get asked these questions a lot and it's a great question. When yep. I have a look at my home, is my home an asset or a liability? Now, it depends. Does my house make me more money than it costs me? And the answer is maybe. Mm-hmm. Can so the old house that I used to rent, I used to write off a lot of the because I had staff working from the house and and I mean I spend probably sixty to eighty hours a week working at least on most weeks. Yeah. So my office I can write off on tax because it is a tax expense. Okay, depending on your the tax agent and so on. So. The answer is partly yes, but it could also be no. Some people buy houses and go, oh, well, my house makes me feel better about life, so therefore my house is an asset to my life. Well, Mm. do you make money out of it? Does it add value to life? How do you perceive that value? Where does the money come in? And a lot of people bullshit themselves, which is why they get stuck financially. (laughs) Yeah. Because, for instance, if I've got friends of mine, they go out and they buy a brand new car and they go, oh, it's an asset. I, I, I need it for work. And I go, really? What do you like? What do you need it for work for? And they go, because oh, I'm an accountant. And I go, yeah, but you drive it to work. You park it in a garage. And, <laughs> yeah. and other than that, you, no one sees your car. How's it an, how's an asset? And they go, oh, well, because I've got to get to work somehow. It's not really an asset. That's a fantasy that they've created. True. So when you asked about my car, my car before I bought it, I was wondering, is my car a fantasy or a delusion that I've created and thinking that it's going to give me something that I don't already have in my life? So what I did was I grabbed out a pen and a piece of paper and I wrote down 200 reasons why buying the car was a stupid idea. E.g., how much money does it cost me to service it? Now, Mm -hmm. it costs because it's a supercar, it costs a lot more than a normal car. So that's the disadvantage. Driving it everywhere. I can't just drive it everywhere and park it somewhere because people bang it, dent it, you know yep. how most people are with their cars. They don't give a shit about them. So True. when you drive a supercar, they've got bigger, wider doors, which means they're harder to open. I can't normally park in a normal car park and get out of it without you know, squeezing you're out. You're worrying about it. Yeah, yeah. And then you get some other asshole who parks next to you and they open the door and don't give a shit and that, that's going to cost mm. you $10,000 to get fixed. Insurance mm. cost is expensive. You know, there's yep. all these... I can, I can drive... I've, I've still got one of my old cars and that car, I sold all my cars when I was younger and just drove around in my wife's car. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a 2003 Hyundai Getz, which he bought brand new when she was um, 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, I uh, yeah, I've, I've been dry. I drove that car for like five or six years, and I used to go to business meetings in that car, and people used to laugh at me, but I didn't care because mm-hmm. I had a reason for it. Yeah, when I drive that car, I could essentially park that car anywhere, including in the middle of a park. Okay, if I wanted to go to a park and I wanted to drive it in the middle of the park, I could just drive it in, on there, leave the car, and people would go. Oh, Look at that dickhead parked on in the middle of an ocean, okay? But no yep. one knows it's me. Mm-hmm. When I drive my car, most people who have seen it on Facebook or social media know it's me and my car. I've got the only red R8 in South Australia. So mm-hmm. if I do anything in that car, people know who's that who that car is. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll be driving and someone will be going slow and I'll drop it down a gear and cut in and out of traffic a little bit. And sometimes I get a message from someone going, hey, nice driving mojo. And I go, shit, because yeah. I can't, everyone everyone sees it. So there are massive disadvantages to having that car. I go out mm-hmm. places and little kids, I'll be running late for a meeting and little kids will come up and go, hey, can I have a photo with the car? And I go, oh, shit. 
do I say no and then seem like an asshole or do I say yes and run late for the meeting? What do I do? So there, yeah. there's, there's all these complications that come with greater achievement that most people don't think about. Mm-hmm. So with my car, I wrote all of those down. Then I eventually looked at it and I said, do I still love, if I own this car, would this car still be valuable and an asset to my life? And the answer was yes. I've always wanted a supercar and it's a reflection Mm-hmm. of my thinking because when I was a young kid I said I'll grow up one day in order to have a Ferrari that's what I wanted and mm-hmm. I've always loved supercars but people around me told me they're so expensive you've got to get a good job you've got to get a, get a good education and mm-hmm. I ended up doing it a completely different way and broke all the rules and still became what I wanted to become and mm-hmm. every day I see that car and get in that car it's a reminder to me to keep dreaming big thinking yep. big and believing in myself and that's why I own that car. But also yep. what I realized was that by owning that car, it also gives me access to a lot of high net worth people because I get invited on drive days. Yeah. Has the car made me more money than it's cost? And the answer is yes. I turned it into an asset because now I get invited to things that most other people don't get invited to. And I have access to, to certain clubs that other people don't get access to. Mm-hmm. So that car's made me more money than it's cost. And all sorts of marketing, uh, it's, it's marketing as well because people see my car, they know who it is. Um, yeah, it's pretty much like a brand, you know, you got your own brand with your car, yeah. But in saying that, I also have a way of making money from it. What I find is a lot of people go, oh, well, my car's marketing because I put a sticker on it. But mm-hmm. no one's ever bought anything because they own that car, which means that they don't understand whether it's a liability or an asset and they don't have a strategy for it. I've got a strategy. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep, it does. Yep. Yep. Okay, Thanks for answering the question. Yep. You know, from a lot of the stuff that I've said, a lot of people you'll you'll figure out, and especially if you ever come and learn from any of my events or seminars or my products or my programs, you realize that most people live in delusions or fantasies, which is the reason why they have a lot of volatilities, a lot of negative emotions. They beat mm-hmm. themselves up a lot. They feel like they're not getting anywhere. It tends to be because they're driven by this funny idea that they have about life and they can never live up to those expectations. Yeah, I think it's like a victim mentality, I would say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if I said to myself, you know, I wish the world was peaceful and the world's not peaceful and therefore that makes me feel shit and angry, then mm. that's a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, never in history. I mean, it, it, any, anyone who's ever been in a relationship knows that you can't have peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in a relationship, when you put two people together, they have two different value sets, and yep. their psychology is different. And what will happen is that they will have times of arguing, and they'll have time of peace. Mm-hmm. So, when you put when when we have a look at Australia, when you put twenty eight million Australians together, do you think that they're all going to get along? No, it's not going to happen. No. And then when you put a whole bunch of countries together that have different philosophies, different ideals, different ideas about the way that things should be, and different religions. Yeah, because um, they all have different values and sets of beliefs and it's it's almost like impossible to, yeah. 100%, but people still believe that we can have world peace. Mm. And that's what makes them stress. They're angry every day because they look at the world and they open up Facebook and people are fighting and arguing. They go, oh, this shouldn't be this way. And then they get angry. But then when mm. they're angry, they go, oh, I know what I need. I need more peace. And so they keep trying to be more peaceful, but it makes them more angry on the inside. Mm. Same as people True. chase happiness. I think it was Confucius said that the the fastest way to unhappiness is try to be happy all the time. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's a good lesson, I guess, yeah, for mm. people to be listening. 
For sure. Um, I guess my last question would be like what you're currently working on in terms of project and where can people find you if you can touch on that? Yeah, um, the current projects, I've got a couple that I'm working on actually. Um, One is my business mastermind that's coming up in two weeks. So uh, it's called Odyssey. Uh, It's sort of an invite only or an application only process to get into that. Um, Mm -hmm. It's where I bring business owners uh, in who have growing businesses and want to learn from the best in different industries. Um, And so I bring them in and um, once a quarter we catch up. Uh, as a group. Um, and then every week we have accountability sessions um, to make sure that they set goals and keep driving forward. Um, I've got the the quarterly catch up is uh, in two weeks. So I'm bringing in some pretty cool people for that. Last time I had the one of the ex heads of Bendigo Bank, uh, one of the big accounting firms, one of the head partners in there came in to talk about um, cash flow and uh, how to make money in business and, and where there's hidden money that you probably don't know about uh, in mm-hmm. your financials. So I bring in all these experts who are way, way smarter than I am yeah. uh, in their respective fields uh, to teach things to help businesses grow. Um, so I'm working on that. And then I've also got my brand new Dominate online program that I've just launched to business owners. Um, and I wanted a low price point product that I could um, take to the world online and mm-hmm. teach a lot of the things in using human behavior and human psychology to help businesses perform. I mean, a lot of people don't think about sales as being human behavior, but it's only human behavior. Um, and most business people try to look for a better strategy with their marketing instead of understanding that their whole marketing team and marketing department are all influenced by what happens in their own head and their own psychology. And yeah, true. the core value, definitely, I would say, yeah. Yeah, and unless you, unless you have the right human behavior aspect, your sales is going to suffer. And you want your sales team to perform, you've got to get, them, you've got to get inside their head. Mm. Um, and so I provide really good strategies for that and really good understanding. And it's at a really low price point that really any, any business owner anywhere can afford. If they can't, they shouldn't be in business. Um, mm. So yeah, I launched that two weeks ago. Um, and so now I'm just about to put together uh, two brand new courses because uh, it's a monthly subscription. Every month I add in one or two new topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this month coming up is going to be really cool because I'm showing how the military, like the Navy SEALs and stuff like that, train their brain to perform and to build wild habits and mm-hmm. how we implement that in business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one is building powerful branding so that you make sure that you attract the right clients but also repulse the wrong ones mm-hmm. um, because that's something that I don't really hear spoken a lot about in business and marketing is repulsing yeah. the wrong clients. Um, and when you do that, you'll gunk up your business by having – a lot of your staff having to deal with irate customers, upset people, people who waste your time and your energy because they don't want to use your product and your service. Whereas you need a repulsion strategy in marketing and branding, not just an attraction strategy. So I'm going into a lot of that stuff as well. Yeah, good stuff. And I'll make sure I'll link all those things below so people can find you easily. And uh, thanks for being on the show, man. Really appreciate your time again. Appreciate it. Yep. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, man. Cheers. Cheers.